So, tonight, though, um, is a bit wonky. So if you're new or you're visiting, you are stepping into a family conversation. This is not business as usual. Next Sunday, we kick off our fall practice of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we're back to, like, very ordinary stuff with an in-depth teaching on the devil, all right? So... (laughs) Just not weird at all. Just come ready to hear all about Satan. Um, This week, though, is a little bit weird. This week is kind of a family meeting. So as I said, Alex is up in just a minute. But before that, I need about 10 minutes of your time to just chat through a few exercises and some stuff um, for your Bridgetown community as we wrap up our vision series before we begin our fall practice. Now, last week's teaching was essentially a 40-minute synopsis of our best take of what it means to apprentice under Jesus, or if you prefer, to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And for us, it is to organize your life around three goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he would do if he were you. And of course, to do that together, right, around a table, not just around a stage, and to do it here in the city that we call home. And if you were here last weekend or on the podcast or you're just here now and you're thinking, man, that sounds like a lot. Why can't I just come to church on Sunday when I have the time in my weekend schedule, ascribe to a belief system or 80 or 90% of it out there that I agree with, and then just like tip well the rest of the week and be nice, like whatever. Why isn't that enough? And I get that 100%, no judgment if that's you. But for us, in particular in a city like Portland, where the gravitational pull to the hedonic kind of treadmill of our city is so strong. For us, that kind of formula of just show up to church on Sunday, ascribe to the belief system, and just have a Christian friend or two during the week is just not strong enough to mitigate against the gravitational pull. So many people come to the city to change the city for the kingdom or whatever, and instead are changed by the city and get sucked in and are here for a while and then are lost to the city from the kingdom. And part of that is because I think a lot of us don't have a working theory of change. Either that, we don't have one at all, or we have one and it's off either a little bit or a lot. Now when I say a working theory of change, um, if our end goal in life is to become like Jesus of Nazareth, and in doing so, our true self, if you're anything like me, there needs to be a little bit of a tweak in you between here and there. Am I right? There needs, you need to change. So do I. Like, we are loved as we are, but we are loved into our full potential in Jesus, right? And um, that means that we need to change. But tragically, a lot of people don't have a working theory of change. If you ask, it's virtually assumed in the modern Western church that the trifecta of Sunday church and particular sermons, Bible reading and prayer in the morning, plus willpower, is a winning formula to grow and mature to become more like Jesus. Beyond that, most people's grasp of spiritual formation, uh, which again is a little bit insider lingo, it's kind of from the New Testament. By spiritual formation, all we mean is how we are formed in our spirit from the inner core of our being out, long before you get to behavior, to become more like Jesus and in doing so our true self. Most people's grasp of that is fuzzy at best. So if you ask around, just ask your family, your friends, how do you think that we change to become more like Jesus and our true self? Just, just have fun with it, like cocktail party conversation, right? What in my experience you find is that most people just gloss over and then offer you some kind of a cliche 
I just stay close to Jesus, or it's all the Spirit, or it's all God, or let go and let God, or whatever the cliche is. And that's not to disparage that at all, but if you press past the kind of Christianese and you drill down, all right, talk to me about the specifics. You wake up tomorrow morning, week ahead, how do you change? Like, how does that all go down? Most people struggle to articulate any kind of theory of working change beyond, I go to church, I read my Bible and pray in the morning or at night or whatever, and I just live a good life. Now, again, we're all for those practices. Those practices are core. You're at church right now, so am I. I've been here all day, actually. We're all for it. I read my Bible and pray. What is up, dude? Mm, you have the coolest hair of all time. Man, bring it on. <laughs> I'm just going to keep talking, if that's okay with you. Just grab him. Yes! You got him! You got him! Oh, my goodness. My goodness. Another reason to come to church on Sunday nights, right there. Oh, man. Again, those practices are core to the way of Jesus. But under that rubric of like that working theory of change, if you've been around the church for any length of time, and I grew up in the church, I've, I've been around this kind of beautiful stuff for a very long time, what you see is this pattern start to emerge that is a bit disturbing. You see a lot of people who when they first start to follow Jesus, or in the church tradition I grew up in, we would say get saved, um, you see dramatic life change over the first season, the first few months, the first few years, which is exactly what you would hope for and even expect in faith when you have somebody who either had no map to navigate life by or one that was off. All of a sudden, here's a whole new map for life. Here's a whole new trajectory. Here's a whole new destination. Here is Jesus to lead you on the path. Here's a new community to come around you. Here is the Spirit of God himself in you like you would expect dramatic life change, and you see it all the time. We could just stand up and tell stories for the next four hours of people that are, you've been following Jesus less than five years. Life change here, freedom there, healing there, it's beautiful. But the stories that we rarely, if ever, tell, at least from the stage in church, is about what happens to a lot of people two, three, four, five years in. Dramatic life change is also, is often followed by a plateau. Where after people deal with what the early church fathers and mothers called the gross sins, and they did not mean like, ooh, they meant like, like the major sins of life, then we actually get into the sins that are much harder to deal with than an addiction even, or than, you know, violence or whatever it is. You start to get into things that are far more below the surface, a father wound, a mother wound deeply ingrained habits of sin in your mind and in your body or in your family of origin or in your ethnic background or national background or socioeconomic background. And all of a sudden, a lot of people stall out and just hit this concrete wall. And some people at that point throw in the towel and say, this whole thing must be a sham. Like, where is the life transformation of Jesus? Here I am. I read my Bible every day. I pray. I'm at church. And I'm just stuck in this addiction, stuck in anger at my father, stuck in insecurity over my body or whatever it is. Other people, and this is far more common, just settle for mediocrity. 
So um, like whenever I take a road trip and I go outside of the city, I see Christian bumper stickers and I remember that Christians live other places in the world still, right? <laughs> Beyond just you. Um, and I'm like, oh yeah, there are Christians in the world. They just don't live in my city. And so you see, Christian, no, they do, you're here. That was bad sarcasm, I apologize. <laughs> um, and one that I see on a regular basis, at least once per road trip, is I, I detest it. It's that Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Which I guess is kind of sort of true. Uh, I mean, I'm perfect, but apparently a lot of other ones <laughs> aren't. Um, but man, I just, I can't help but wonder. I do not think Jesus would chuckle at that. I think he would weep. That is the expression of somebody for whom mediocrity and transformation has become normative. And that's a way, a self-talk way to just deal with the disappointment of, you know, I'm not really that different from other people that don't follow Jesus. That's a tragedy. That's not how, if you think that's not how it's supposed to work, you're right. That's not how it's supposed to work. If there's not a radical difference between you and a coworker or other people that don't follow Jesus, then something that we are saying is not true or not right. And then another group of people just burn out striving. Because if the formula is church, Bible prayer, willpower, maybe I just need to do more church, more Bible prayer, more willpower. Just like go to church more often, read through the Bible twice in a year, pray like in the morning and the evening, and just try hard, try hard, try hard, try hard. And so people just flame out and end up just tired all the time. Know the Bible really well. That's not the problem. Something else is going on. So we've spent a lot of time over the last few years in particular on this question, how do we change? And um, we don't have all the answers to it, and we fumble our way through, and we kind of view our church as an R&D department for that question, for the church at large, and we want to explore even church architecture, and how do, we, how do we cultivate an environment, a soil in our community for your soul to grow in? And our working theory of change, some of you might, may or may not recognize this, hopefully you do, is here, I don't have time to teach through this, I just put this up by way of reminder. Um, if you, I, our dream would be that if you are a part of Bridgetown Church, you have this kind of paradigm put to memory that you can like sketch it out on a napkin and give your aunt like the elevator pitch, like five minutes. Auntie, this is how I believe. This is our working theory of how we change to become more like Jesus and our real true self. Here it is. And like, you don't need to sound like Dallas Willard or whatever, just like base, basic mechanics of it. If you can't do that, Go back, listen to our podcast. We have, I think, a few teachings on this from last fall's practice, eight weeks, I think, of teaching on it from the fall before that's practice. This is just our summary and synthesis of our best take on the New Testament's teaching and a little bit of psychology, which we buy into 100% on how we change. We change by teaching, or really a, a better word for that even is truth. We'll talk about that all fall along, the role of truth in our mind to set the trajectory of our life. We are transformed by practice, and the practices in particular are the spiritual disciplines as we create space with our mind and our body for the spirit and truth of God. We're transformed by life in community, which brings out the best in us, and it brings out the worst in us, and both are a part of the process. And then above all, we are transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. This happens over time. It's not like, oh yeah, like in a year I became like Jesus or whatever. It's a lifetime. And in the language of a brilliant theologian by the name of Jay-Z, it happens through the hard knocks of life. In particular, through our pain, through our suffering, 
through whatever that growth edge is. Active and passive spirituality is language of the ancient church, not of the modern, but it's just a way of saying active spirituality, there are things where you go out and you do something. You take the, or at least it feels like, you take the initiative. You read through the Bible in a year. You join a Bridgetown community. You set aside Wednesdays to fast. You practice Sabbath on Saturdays, whatever it is, where you take the initiative. And there's a beautiful aspect of your discipleship. Passive spirituality is passive, not in a pejorative sense, but is a way of saying all you do is say yes to the invitations of Jesus in that season of your life. It's far less about you do something. It's more about acceptance. God, what is it that you're stirring up in this cross, this hardship, this season of life with little children, um, this season of grad school, this season of singleness, this season of dealing with therapy and a father wound, whatever it is, just what are the invitations of Jesus in this season? How do I just say yes and let Jesus do the deep work of transformation? Again, this is just our working theory, and we're not even saying this is like truth, base your life on it. We're saying this is our working theory of how we change. It's not, Sunday is beautiful. Reading the scriptures and time in prayer each morning is, I can't think of another way to begin my day. But if we want to experience all that Jesus has for us, there's more. That said, please don't read over this um, or listen to last week's teaching or hear kind of the vision for the year ahead and think that's just, it's too much. It's overwhelming. I'm in school. I'm working two jobs. I don't have the time. I'm already living with low-grade anxiety. Please get, if you hear nothing else tonight, hear this. We are not calling you to do more. We're calling you to do less. This is not about addition. It's about, if anything, subtraction. We're not saying add in more Jesus stuff on top of your already over-busy life. It's the last thing you need to hear. We're saying take up the easy yoke of Jesus. Slow down. Cut stuff out of your life. Get a day this week and just get your calendar out or your journal or get with your best friend and just make a list of six, seven things in your weekly schedule to murder. Just do it, right? <laughs> just kill your TV or your social media account or that or whatever you need to do to create space for love, to create space for you to love God and above all for God to love you and transform you through his love. On that note, um, just two exercises that we want to talk you through before Alex comes up. These not, won't take long. Just two exercises for you and your community to work through on this kind of journey of spiritual formation. One, we just call the annual apprentice plan. Um, do you have these two handouts? Do you have the one with the, the triangle thingy on the back? Yeah, pull that out really fast. Again, this is just a tool, take it or leave it. Um, you don't need to do this. This is just, if it's helpful, wonderful. As we said last week, in our spiritual formation, we have a part and Jesus has a part. We have a role to play and he has a responsibility. We think that he does most of the heavy lifting. Our part is really just to slow down and show up. This is a plan for our part of our spiritual formation, all right? So just keep in the back of your head all of his part, which is 80 or 90% of it. We just start kind of with the end in mind of Christ-likeness and the organizing goals of life and then just move backward through life and community, passive spirituality, as I said, active spirituality, teaching, 
and then practicing the way, these habits of mind and body to index towards us toward the path of transformation. And we take on one every few months. We start next week, um, as I said, with Satan. Uh, <laughs> I just like saying that. I don't know why. It's just late, and I like saying that. So on the back, we just have a few questions for you. And this is basically an exercise for you to get your journal out. Or again, if you prefer more extroverted, a best friend or a therapist or a spouse or fiance, and just work through a few questions as um, a tool to make a plan for the year ahead. Christ-likeness or true self. Do you have a vision for yourself 20, 30, 50 years down the road who is more than ever before like Jesus, Christ-like, but expressed through your gender, Myers-Briggs type, social background, your story? Do you hold in your mind a vision of the person that you want to become and you think Jesus wants you to become? And do you regularly visualize that man or woman in your mind's eye, even if he or she is half a century away? Like, I just see myself old, and I might not be that handsome, but I am way calmer, and I'm joyful, and I'm at peace. There's an older mentor in my life who is almost the exact same personality type as me, like almost exactly on multiple different personality tests, but he's just wicked awesome. And he's so calm, and he's so patient, and he just like, every time I'm with him, I'm like, this is what is possible for me, right? So my vision is basically just him. Um, so whatever your vision is, like just have a vision of what is possible when you reach your full potential with Jesus. Have that vision in your mind's eye. Um, questions around the goals of life. Are your organizing goals of life, be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did? Or if you're honest, are they actually kill it at work, make a lot of money, buy a house, or get a wife, or a husband, or whatever it is? Um, again, no self-judgment. Just take an honest look. What are the organizing goals? What is driving my life forward? Life and community, who is your community? How do you take the next step and go deeper in the year ahead? Passive spirituality, what are the invitations of God in this season of life? What do you need to stop fighting and accept? What right now is just something that you hate and you're running from that actually there's an invitation of Jesus in there for growth? Active spirituality, what is you know, what Jung called your shadow? Like, what do you actually need to take on head on? There's a sin, there's a habit, there's a lie I believe, there's a father wound, there's a broken relationship, there's a bitterness in me against the ex-fiance. Like, what is it where you want to take an active role and go after that with Jesus? Teaching, what are you doing to fill your mind with truth from the scriptures, an author, a podcast, church, whatever it is? And then again, practicing the way. What are the practices that make up your rule of life? Do you have a rule of life? And do you want to come up with one in the year ahead? Or do you want to add or subtract or edit or re-envision Sabbath or take another look at community or take a fresh glance at simplicity or whatever it is to begin to lean into the lifestyle of Jesus? And again, these are just questions to work you through. Really, the meta question is, what's the growth edge in the year ahead? What is Jesus calling me into? And what would it look like to put a little bit of that on paper and talk about it with a best friend or with my community or with somebody I trust? and really move forward. And, and usually that means meeting Jesus in the pain. So for me, it's meeting Jesus in my ongoing struggle with anger and the way that I often don't treat my children in particular in a way that Jesus would treat his children. Like that's the, I know that's the invitation of Jesus for me in the year ahead, to step into that, to meet Jesus in my sin 
and the fact that I lose my temper with my kids, and the fact that I have to apologize way too much, and the fact that I don't relax into a space and time enough. That's, that's the growth edge for me in the year ahead. A year from now, I wanna be a less angry, more patient and loving father. Like that, there's other stuff I wanna see happen, that's the main thing. So what is it for you? What's the pain? Is it a sin? Is it a wound? Is it a grief? Is it a disappointment? Is it an open question? Is it a doubt? Just meet Jesus in that pain. We heal by moving toward our pain, not by moving away from it. So whatever that is, meet Jesus there. Let him do a beautiful work. Second exercise, um, Colin's coming up. This is Colin Majak. He's on our communities team. And uh, amazing pastor. Colin, talk to us about exercise two, which is not so much for me as much as for our communities. We do this every year. Yeah. Talk us through On your it again. way in, you should have gotten one of these commitment docs. Uh, we spend some time every single year working through uh, what we call the Bridgetown Community Commitments. And even at the sound of that word, some of you are cringing a little bit or your pulse is quickening. And it's, so there's the growth edge for you yeah, in the year ahead. Commitment <laughs> is really good. Stress level midnight for you. Um, we just want to encourage you just like, it's going to be okay. Um, the goal of these commitments is not to put restrictions on your life, yeah. but instead to create an environment in which spiritual formation can actually happen. It's creating space in your community for one another to grow. Um, if I were asked, like, hey, what's the, what's the trick to a healthy community? Like, what's, what's the secret sauce that makes community good? Or one of, one of the members of my community earlier whispered, yum sauce. Like, <laughs> referring to Cafe Yum. Uh, if I were asked that, my answer would be, for sure, commitment over time. Commitment over time. Yeah. It's because commitment to one another and ultimately to apprenticeship to Jesus is the seedbed for trust to flourish. And without trusting relationships, uh, spiritual formation is not possible. If I do not trust you, we cannot grow together. That's just the reality. So that, to that end, we've organized Bridgetown Community Commitments around three ideas. Super original. Practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. Uh, when we talk about practicing the way, on one hand, we're talking about working through the practices along with Bridgetown Church. But even more than that, we're talking about a life of daily apprenticeship to Jesus. That you on your own would be working to put into practice the spiritual disciplines of Jesus, like fasting and prayer and silence and solitude. Or, or put another way, that the ideas of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did is not just some sort of abstract Bridgetown vision, but actually would start to become the goals that you orient your life around. Now, practicing the way of Jesus together means living as a family. And the main way that we express that at Bridgetown Church, in addition to Sundays, is sharing a meal with our community every single week. So all throughout the city and neighborhoods near you, there are communities gathering every single week to have a meal together. And this meal, it's the center of gravity for a Bridgetown community. It's, it's the thing that you're committing to. Um, it's the place where you'll take the bread and the cup together to remember Jesus. It's a place where you'll begin to share life together and engage in the practices. It's a place where you'll practice gratitude and pray for one another and hear the highs and the great moments of people's life and then the lows. And in that place, be transformed. All of that happens around the table, around a meal. Now, if that kind of ornate, beautiful vision is going to happen, here are a couple asks, and you can kind of follow along on your sheet. Um, ask one is that you strive to be at every weekly meal on time, just to be there. That's kind of like, that's the, the biggest ask. Now, do things come up? Yes, things are going to come up. You're going to get sick. You're going to, I used the kids example last gathering, and 
We have one here tonight. There's one. There's one really cute kid here. Um, but things come up and you might miss your community. So ask two is if you're going to miss a weekly meal, that you give your community leader 24 hours notice, ideally, uh, with a phone call instead of a text. Just because it's really, really easy to bail with a text mm -hmm. and to have actually make a phone call asks you to check your reasoning. It forces you to wrestle with, is this a good reason or a mediocre reason to not go to community tonight? So um, the hope is that the brunt of your weekly meal doesn't just fall on your community leader or on your host or on your resident Enneagram type two, but the hope instead <laughs> is that you would all chip in to make this meal happen. That all of you, everyone contributes. So someone's bringing chicken. Someone, if you don't, if you're like, I don't want to cook that, don't trust me with chicken, you can square cash someone for said chicken, or you can do dishes or offer the host. The point being that everyone chips in to make this meal happen. Beyond the weekly meal, the dream is that your community would start to share regular life together. So this looks like sitting together on Sundays. I know there's a large crew of you that often sit like this same section every single week. Um, praying for one another, reading a book together, grabbing happy hour in your neighborhood, or talking about sports or playing board games if you're into those kind of things. Whatever you're doing, the goal is to build relationship with one another. And if you do that, you'll find that pretty soon you're not just talking about sports, which I'm never talking about, just in general. But you're not just talking about sports, you're just talking about the book that you read or something you saw on Instagram or whatever it may be. But you start to get into the real stuff of life. You start to hear about one another's pain. You start to hear about difficulty and this existential wrestling with who am I becoming? What do I want to do with my life? You're going to hear about the pain of marriage or the pain of singleness and all of the needs that come up in this messy thing that we call life. And the hope is that as you hear about those needs, you actually become the kind of community that leans in to meet them. So, hey, you can't pay for rent this month. How, how much do you owe? How bad is it? Okay, well, let's help you. Or you're feeling really lonely and just really depressed. Um, come over for dinner tonight. The menu is going to be mediocre, but come over anyway. Uh, or I'll come over to your place. The point being that you would, as a community, start to meet those needs. The last kind of regular life commitment you'll see there is, and I quote, to communicate clearly and consistently, i.e. return text messages. And I'm not going to comment. You just know who you are. You just like... You we let, know who you are too, by the way. Yeah, well, I, yeah uh, <laughs> your community leader knows who you are. Finally, we're practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. And the commitment here is twofold. That one, that you would jump in and participate in whatever common mission that your community has adopted, whether that's a monthly hospitality night or partnering with the Justice Initiative in our city, or some sort of gospel proclamation. Whatever it is that you jump in, you do that with your community in our city. And then secondly, that on your own, you're becoming the kind of person who does acts of justice. The kind of person who practices hospitality on your own without your community prompting you. And that you're doing that in your work, your neighborhood, and your home. Okay, so that kind of sums up the commitments. So what, what's the ask? What are we asking of you with your community? The ask is that this week you would get together with your community and you would just talk about these commitments. Come together, hey, which ones stand out to you? Which ones have we done really well this year? Like what, what it's done well? What can we celebrate? And what have we maybe not done so well? And what steps can we take to kind of get there? Kind of doing that sort of inventory as a community. And then pray over the next year. Pray that Jesus would unite you together and that you become the kind of people who learn what it looks like to apprentice under his way of life to lean into his vision of the good life together.
Oh, so good. And again, as always, if you're not in a community, you're invited. Sign up for the next basics class. We would love to have you join a community in your neighborhood. That's it. Should be a fun week. Um, Alex, we love you, man. Something fierce. And we're really sad and we're really happy at the same time. Uh, this is Alex Redman. If you're new or you're visiting. All right, well, it is uh, a serious privilege. I don't, I don't know that words could really convey um, what my time here has meant to me. Um, it was a dream. Uh, just a little bit of, uh, you, this is the 7 p.m., so it's going to be longer than just 20 minutes, I can imagine. Uh, that's, that's what I was originally allotted, but do I have permission wherever you're at? Okay, he's gone, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, um, I became a, I started following Jesus uh, in 2007 when John Mark was a college pastor over in Beaverton, and uh, I remember ever since then hearing him open the scriptures and share like we've heard uh, week in, week out, and it gave me, you know, he was talking, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it tonight, but it gave me a vision for what being a Christ-like man would look like, and I had had other examples, and so it's not to disparage the other men in my life, but um, I just saw what I wanted, and I was like, oh, that, you know, he talks about, I'm going to be calmer someday, but I was just like, the way, there was so much to, admi- to be admired now, and then also back then, of uh, the, the way that he follows Jesus and is passionate about Jesus, it really spurred something, and it awoken something in me that I kind of have always aimed to do whenever I preach. I, I've been inspired from that, from when I was 17 years old and thought, I want to see people's lives changed by interacting with Jesus the way that my life was changed, uh, you know, however many years ago that was, 11 years ago now. So um, the 7 p.m. has become a place where I feel like we encounter God consistently. And uh, it's, uh, you know, there's, the church is amazing. There's, if you've ever been to the morning gatherings, amazing things are happening there as well. But for me, um, I think it was a couple years ago, Gerald pulled me aside. He said, you know, um, you've done a lot here, but it's, I think it's time for you to take more ownership. And he just said, spiritually, I want you to take ownership of the 7 p.m. That doesn't mean you're going to preach at the 7 every week, but just really own that gathering, love that gathering, pray for that gathering. And, uh, and so I took it seriously. And there's something about sacrificing for something, loving something uh, that makes you love it even more, you know? It's like the food always tastes better if you worked hard to cook it, that sort of a thing. And I just really, truly, from the bottom of my heart, really love you guys. I'm going to miss this. This is so much fun to uh, get together every week to open the scriptures together. And uh, for, but for those of you who are in Newburgh, look, these fox, you, you don't drive down here. Come, come, we're going to be right there, all right? It's like eight blocks from campus, okay? So I better see you there. Um, <laughs> I'm just memorizing your faces now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I want to address part of the vision for Saints Hill Church. And in doing so, I'm going to address a little bit of the vision here at Bridgetown as well. So to do that, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, just one of the most important uh, passages in all of the scriptures. Um, And I just want to take another look. I I know we've looked at it so many times, but I think there's something fresh for us here in the Lord's Prayer. Um, I want to look at specifically within the Lord's Prayer, this mandate for on earth as it is in heaven. 
I was recently watching, this is a couple months ago, watching this documentary on Netflix called um, Come Sunday. Has anybody seen or watched that Come Sunday one? It's like nobody has seen this documentary. Um, Ira Glass from uh, This American Life, he made this movie called Come Sunday. Then it's kind of like a um, reenactment of the life of this pastor back in the 90s who began to wrestle with the question of hell and eventually said he didn't believe in hell and that the Bible didn't teach uh, that hell was a reality. And uh, the way that he came to this is that him and his daughter were sitting uh, watching um, basically some kind of genocide play out on the nightly news back in the 90s. And uh, he just sat there thinking about his daughter, who was young at the time and, and eating the food that they were eating in the house that they were living in, and watching this, this poverty, this sickness, this uh, you know, horrible thing play out in front of them, and he thought, nobody's going to hell, we're living in hell. And uh, his whole entire worldview changed, he gave up uh, the theology of hell, which in turn meant that he had to leave his church, and his, even his personal life began to sort of implode. Um, over this decision, and, and you know, obviously it was painted in this really amazing light, this guy's so brave for giving up this horrible doctrine that the church has held for, you know, down through centuries, and, um, and as I was watching this documentary, I, I was like thinking, oh, what they, here's what they want me to feel, but all I could think was this, the fact that the earth looks like hell wasn't a foreign con- concept to Jesus, Jesus isn't aware that there are hellish situations here on earth. He's not naive. He's not under an illusion. In fact, it could be said, I think, that based on Jesus' experience, that he understood that there was hell on earth better than any of us. And yet, this is how he teaches us to pray. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It says this, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus was fully aware that there was another force in the world, an opposing force to the kingdom of God. Or else he wouldn't have asked us to pray this prayer. If Jesus thought that God's will was just being done generally everywhere, why would he ask us to pray that God's will would be done, right? He asks us to pray this because God's will is often not done. Turn on the news. And you will find where God's will is not being done. But here's the difference between that pastor and between Jesus. Jesus doesn't shape his worldview around the work of the enemy. He shapes his worldview and he positions himself and us, his disciples, to make heaven more influential than hell. You see, um, this passage is a powerful passage that has captured my heart, not only for Newburgh and the Willamette Valley, but I know it is the heartbeat behind practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland, like you just heard about. Um, And for all of those of us who have gotten so used to this text, and so used to, yeah, on earth as it is now, I get it, yeah, it's just a phrase, I saw it on a t-shirt, like, it's just, we get it, right? Could there be more to it? Could we imagine again as a community what that might actually look like if we were to take it seriously. 
Now, I don't always do this, but for you note takers in the room, this is your night. This is a three-point message, okay? We got three just clean points. The first is the posture of on earth as it is in heaven. The second is the mindset of on earth as it is in heaven. And the third is the lifestyle of on earth as it is in heaven. So first, the posture. Um, you know, if you've never been to church before and this is your first time, or you've never read the Bible and this is the first time you've, uh, you know, uh, opened the Bible before, you still have probably heard the Lord's Prayer, right? Um, in, if you've been around Bridgetown for any length of time, you've not only heard the Lord's Prayer, you've probably heard it hundreds, maybe a thousand times, right? But what we have to remember is that this prayer is in the context of a question, And the question is from the disciples, and it's this, how? How do we pray? Now, I think it could be said that at the most simple definition of prayer, prayer is communication with the creator. If you're taking notes, write it down. It's communication with the creator. So the question of how is kind of a fascinating one. For most of us who grew up in the church, we're like, well, maybe just begin with like, dear Jesus, and then say a few things, it sound good, sort of like maybe from the Bible or you've heard at church, and then say amen, and that's, that's a prayer, right? But could there be an approach to our prayer? Could there be a worldview attached to the way that we pray? Could there be a posture for us to take in prayer? I would argue yes. So, so what sort of posture does the Lord's Prayer put us into? It puts us into the posture of receiving, of reception. Notice it says, it begins with this, our father, we have a father. What do fathers do? They take care of family. So from the very beginning, we're rooting our identity and our source in the fact that we have a heavenly father who cares about his children, right? Secondly, it says, give us our daily bread, right? We don't have enough to make it on our own. I don't have enough uh, energy. I don't have enough peace. I don't have enough of any of those things. So I'm actually going to root what I need in relationship with you. And then it says, forgive us. I don't have the ability to make me right, to just make everybody forget about my sin. I actually need you to forgive me and to make me right with you. And then it ends with this, lead us, shepherd us. I I, I don't always know the way to go, and so I, I need to receive direction from you. You are the recipient, and because of the part that says on earth as it is in heaven, you, the world becomes a recipient through you. So, so get this, the posture of prayer, the posture of communication that we take isn't one of striving or begging or pleading, but it's one of peace. Notice that the mandate on earth as it is in heaven isn't a battle cry from Jesus with one last dying breath on the cross. On earth as it is in heaven, take the world. Have you ever thought about that? Well, the context of this mandate is within this very simple prayer. I think that Jesus puts us in this posture so that we wouldn't seek heaven on earth through adrenaline, but through the spirit and peace. 
You see, the common theme of the disciples' prayer is that he's the source that we need to flow through us in order to see heaven come. It's not, I get worked up, I get psyched, I listen to some podcasts and some worship music, and then I go take the city for Jesus. It's, I have confident trust that I have a father who cares more about the situations and people than I do, and I believe that he wants to dispense good to each person I interact with. And so I'll allow myself to become that bridge. What's fascinating about um, this prayer is that as I was thinking about this uh, over the week, I realized that this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it actually meets and answers our deepest fears as humans. The the core concerns that we have, um, will good happen to me? Uh, You know, there's all kinds of darkness in my life. Is there anybody who can help push this darkness back? The answer, your will be done. What is God's will? Philip Yancey, um, this great author, he said, God's will is God's good intention towards every person. What's his will? It's good intention towards every person. It answers the fear. The question of will I be taken care of? Will I have enough physical uh, things in my life? A place to sleep, food to eat a car to drive, a job to go to? Uh, Do I have enough spiritual bread? Will you actually sustain me, Lord, when things aren't looking so good? And give us, I'll root it in you, not in my striving. Or or the question, what do I do with my life? And and did I do the right thing with my life there? And, And am I even safe? Am I making the right choices? And it's lead us, shepherd me. It's fascinating to me But fear and anxiety will lead you to question the posture that Jesus has prescribed for your life. But faith is choosing to take the same posture and root the answers to your fears in him rather than in you just spinning on the wheel and worrying. You know, um, I've shared a little bit about George Mueller before, but he's just a hero of the faith. Uh, A British man who lived in the 1800s and ran orphanages and... um, just unbelievable uh, life story. If you haven't heard of him, you should really, like, just even right now, I'll give you permission, Google George Mueller, uh, amazing guy. Um, he had over 50,000 recorded prayers and answers to those prayers in his journals at the end of his life. And the way that it would work, I've shared about this before, but he had one page that he'd write the prayer on, he had another page and he'd write the answer on. And so he left a page blank intentionally because he knew that God was a God who's faithful to his children and would answer the prayers. Uh, He said that he had over 30,000 of these 50,000 prayers. The answer was recorded and dated within the hour that he prayed it or the same day. Like, what? And there were basic things like, we need milk for the orphans, you know? We need, like, they've only had, you know, like, soups. They need some salads. Any Nacho Libre fans out there? They need salads. (laughs) And he's got salad in there. He's like, salad, please, more salad. Um, Or, or like, big things, like finances to build a new orphanage. We, we We need to house more orphans. We need to take care of more children. Look, guys, the reason why I'm talking about him is that this is a man who knew his source and he went to the source. Who's your source? Do you go to him? (laughs) Now, um, this posture actually leads us to change the way that we think about the world. 
So we need to talk about the mindset of on earth as it is in heaven. Now, here's the thing. In order for us to think on earth as it is in heaven, it means that we have to stop thinking in heaven as it is on earth. Uh, that, that may sound kind of odd. You're like, who has ever wanted heaven to look like earth? What are you talking about? But actually, that way of thinking is an incredibly common way of thinking, even within the church. Um, something that all of you are familiar with here at Bridgetown is that the, the information you take in and the habits that you have in your life shape the way that you think about God and believe about the world, right? Right? And so it's so easy for us to like open the news app and just see another act of injustice and just go, knew it. Just another person in power using their power uh, to take advantage of other people. Or as we continue um, going through the news app, we go, oh, and there's another mass shooting today. Did you guys know there was a mass shooting this last week? Some of you knew that. Some of you didn't even know, right? Because we have so many of them that we've gotten desensitized to the evil that's in the world. It's like, oh, another one? Okay, wow, gosh. And then we have this tension within our hearts as we take all this information in. We, we have this personal outrage by looking at the um, wealth gap between rich and poor around the world. And we just go, oh, I don't know. Maybe things should be different than that. Just like it, there's something in my gut about that. But then at the same time, we're like, got to kill some time, open up Instagram, and you can find 10 other people in your feed that you wish your life was as good as theirs. And so there's this tension. It's like, I... I want to have awesome things, but at the same time, maybe, I don't know. And so slowly we begin to shape what we believe about God and his will based on what we see around us. But actually, honestly, guys, I think because of the Lord's Prayer, I don't think that what we see and experience around us can be the foundation of thinking for a disciple, You see, I I believe that when Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, he was saying this, let your expectations and hopes be more shaped by heaven than by earth's realities. Notice he doesn't say, hey, disciples, listen, when you pray, pray on earth as it sort of is in heaven. Like, Okay, pray on earth as it sort of is in heaven because you haven't discovered it yet, but there's gonna be cancer. It's this horrible thing. We're not gonna take much ground on it. And so just, I don't know how much of heaven you should expect, but just pray on earth as it sort of is in heaven. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say pray on earth as it sort of is in heaven because um, there's, uh, you know, depression and suicidal thoughts and there's gonna be a lot of work done in psychology to try to understand this stuff. And so, but we just probably, you'll never solve it. And so just pray on earth as it sort of is in heaven. Guys, the text is in front of you. It says pray on earth as it is in heaven. Is there depression, suicide in heaven? No. Should it be here? No. He invited us to shape our world not by what humans have come to call normal down through history, but by what exists in heaven. I know you guys are quiet because it's a challenge. You're like thinking of a million things right now that you're like, yeah, but what about this situation? What about this? Look, I don't know. He says on earth as it is in heaven. That's his aim. That's where his focus is, and that's where he encourages us to place our focus And the thing is, is that honestly, Jesus, he doesn't just talk about this, he lives it. 
He doesn't ask something of us that he's not willing to do. And so check this out. In John 5, he says this. This is just one of my favorite verses. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. His entire frame was not judging his success or his thoughts of if he could succeed based on what had been done or what was always said to be true. He based it on what he saw his father doing. He's like, I'm close to my father. This is what he's doing. You think it's impossible. He doesn't. See, what can happen is if we spend more time focusing on issues and problems here on earth instead of getting God's thoughts and heart for a matter is that we'll be tempted to correct those issues based on our anger and hurt instead of the place of peace and authority that we've been given. Now, for all of you who are mad right now, or like, you're like, what? No, that's not how, how it works. Look, I'm not saying ignore problems. I'm saying let's not allow problems to have a greater place of influence in our life than heaven. That's what I'm saying. And it is this mindset, this commitment that continually revisits intimacy with Christ each minute that enables someone to live in heaven even while they're living here on earth. You know, it's amazing to me that Jesus, when he's going to the cross, days away from the cross, no, not even days, hours away from the cross, from persecution, from being separated from the Father. Have you guys ever thought about what he's thinking about in that moment? Like, what is Jesus thinking about as, right, right before the cross? John chapter 14 gives us this incredible insight into Jesus' thoughts. It says this, knowing that where he had come from and that he was returning to the Father and that all things had been put under his control, He took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and began to wash his disciples' feet. The most hellish, anxiety-ridden time in his life, he lived with peace, so much peace he could serve. Now, here's the deal. Last night, if you were a Duck fan, it was not good. It was not a good night. And (laughs) last night, I'm watching the duck game, and it's not going well, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just thinking, what the heck is going on? They should be winning this game. It's like crazy, right? If you watched it, you're like, yeah, it's crazy. And, it, you know, the ducks mean a lot to me, and maybe too much to me, and so I'm, like, actually emotionally in it. My heart's racing. I'm like, oh, what? What are you guys doing? You're like fumbling the ball. It's like, just, ah. And my wife comes up to me, and she's been at work all day, and she's, like, trying to connect. She's like, hey, so, like, what are we doing for rides tomorrow? And we really need to figure this out. And I'm like, I'm going through something here. <laughs> like, what? R- car rides to church? Like, Justin Herbert. Like, wh- And I'm like, I'm stressed. I can't think about how I'm getting to church tomorrow. Like, uh, and <laughs> here, here's the deal. I think the cross is a little more stressful than the duck game. And so... <laughs> Jesus, way more stressed out, going to the cross, literally like going facing hell. And what is he doing? He's able to serve. That is the peace that's available to you. (laughs) 
Nothing less than the life of Jesus. Living in heaven even while you're in the midst of hell. A.W. Tozer, I just love this quote. Uh, He says this in his book, Born After Midnight. He says, the learned historians tell of councils and bulls and religious wars, but in the midst of all the mummery were a few who saw the eternal city in full view and managed almost to walk on earth as if they had already gone to heaven. These were the joyous ones who got little recognition from the world of institutionalized religion and might have gone altogether unnoticed if it weren't for their singing. Honestly, this is you guys. Seriously, we don't just come and sing songs because we're like, man, the music here is so great. Like, you could go to any concert and hear great music. It's the Spirit of God saying amen to the cry of your heart. It actually pushes back darkness and moves us to change a place. Like, honestly, that's this, like, intimacy is what it is about because it, nobody can touch the intimacy. When Mary uh, was sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha's doing a bunch of other stuff, Jesus says this, Mary has chosen the better part, and you're like, oh, well maybe because she's just showing her love for Jesus more while Martha's more concerned with like other things. No, he says she's chosen the better part because what she's chosen can't be taken from her. You see, you could do a bunch of stuff for Jesus and still, at the very end, not know him. In fact, there's some really startling language about that in the New Testament. So do you know him? (laughs) Are you close with him? Because that's something that nothing, nothing can take that away from you. What, when you think on earth as it is in heaven, it produces joy that goes beyond your circumstances, a passion to see hell on earth done away with, and finally, it produces in you an ability to actually see that happen, to actually see the kingdom of God advance. So lastly, the lifestyle of on earth as it is in heaven. I actually think that the heart behind the Lord's prayer is that what God shares with us about his character, it's actually meant for us to experience. Jesus wasn't under an illusion about the evils in the world. It says that he knew it was in the heart of man in the Gospels. Um, but at the same time, he's confident that his disciples, that us, that we would do similar things to him and even greater things with the privilege of having the same connection with the Father and with the indwelling of his Spirit. He actually believed that you could live with power that you could turn the other cheek, that you could not worry about the waxing and waning of public opinion. So my question to you tonight is if Jesus believed that, do you believe that? Do you believe it's possible? I would argue that if you answer that question in the negative, you could lose the, loss, you could lose the life of a disciple. And and what I mean is that when Jesus came, he came to bring life abundantly. And then he lived that life before our very eyes. And he even said, you know, you guys are searching, he's talking to the Pharisees, you're searching the scriptures to find eternal life and you haven't come to me. And so I took this class at Fox one time where this um, professor asked us, what's the gospel in a sentence? And um, Carl Eric, if you're listening, Carl Eric, it's been a long time. But Carl Eric, he, he said this so eloquently, he said, the gospel is this, come to me. I remember being like, I was like a freshman or sophomore, I was like, oh, that's it. 
That's the gospel. It's come to me. Come to me all who are weary. Come to me all who are thirsty. Come to me if you are hungry. It's come to me. And get life. And and the truth is this. When you don't aim for your life to look like the life of Jesus, you're not missing out on some sort of religious status. You're missing out on life itself. We don't want to miss out on life itself. I just prophetically, you're not going to miss out on life. You're the kind of people who go after him. So keep running after him. You're going to do great at this, guys. I, I really think that, that we need to get a vision, even what John Mark was talking about, of like, do you have a vision for what your Christ-like self is? Um, we need a vision for what sort of activities would change in our life if we really prayed and lived this prayer. What, what would you do differently? What would you seek differently? Um, I think you'd see a lot of shifts in your life, but there are just three that I want to share with you tonight. I think these are the three shifts that would happen in your life if you really begin to think and posture on earth as it is in heaven. Um, I think you would move from competing with people to blessing people. You'd move from competition to blessing. While, while the world is in a constant treadmill-style search for something that is enough, we have a source We no longer look at the lack in the world as any sort of reflection on what God has to offer, so we don't need to compete. You're not trying to beat somebody out for a job so that you can somehow get that income that you need to live in the house that you want to live in, drive the car you want to drive. No, 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 we don't need to do that. We trust more in his ability to provide than our ability to provide. And so we don't have to compete. We actually get to bless people. Like, I just really challenge you. This is something that's been challenging my heart for the past couple years is when good things happen to your friends, even things that you want to happen to you, do you celebrate it? I would argue if you don't celebrate it, that actually says more about you than than anybody else. And and it's not like, there's not a shame attached to it. It's just you actually don't believe that God has your best in mind. And so it's just a mind shift of like, okay, God, I'm going to trust you more than my ability to get that spouse or to, to make this career happen or to live in this neighborhood. It's like, no, like you know my desires, you know them better than me, and so I'm going to trust that you have my best in mind. It enables me to bless rather than compete. The second shift is that you'll move from pessimism to faith. Um, the, the way that the world functions won't have more of a bearing on your heart and attitude than God's promises. I feel like, honestly, I, I think I preach like the same message every time I preach. There's the same thing, so. Um, but seriously, like, do you take the promises of God serious? Like, I'll just be honest. When I go without reading the scriptures and I go without believing the promises of God, there is a marked difference in my emotions, my attitude, and my actions. It's like, I need to constantly, this is like, this is daily bread. Like, I need to constantly feed myself on what he said is going to be true about my life and about the world. Like, when somebody gives you that, that prophetic word or they share that verse with you, are you writing it down? Do you steward the word? Like, look, when the seed is scattered and you as the farmer don't actually steward that word in your heart, it's not going to come to fruit. There's a responsibility that when, the, when God speaks, we go, I treasure your word in my heart. I, I don't know that we would become optimists. I'm not sure that that's the answer, but I think that we would start seeing ourselves differently as empowered people filled with the joy of the Lord regardless of circumstance. And honestly, I think that that will have far more of an effect on a city, on a family, on a friend group than optimism.
And then lastly, I think that we would move from fear to power and to love. We wouldn't treat people with suspicion because we're not threatened by anyone. Like, <laughs> Jake, v, Jake V. Hill and I talk about this a lot. He's like, whenever I'm offended or he's offended, and we're like, oh, I just can't believe they said that, or they, they think that, or oh, whatever, you know. And he's like, you know, dead people aren't offended. And he's like, we died with Christ, and our life is hidden with him. And so, look, you can't be offended if you're dead. You already died to all of it, so what are you to be, why are you offended right now? It's like a heart check. It's like, whoa, yeah. When, it's important to know where you're offended because it's, that's, that gives you a little bit of insight. It's like a microscope on, oh, you still got to die there. <laughs> you still give it up. I think that we would start to live in more power as well. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in you. <laughs> that's, that's good news. That's really good news. I think that's some of the best news that's like rarely heeded. I, honestly, in my own life, I wonder how many times I actually think about a situation that I'm nervous about or scared about, and I go, okay, no. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in me. Help me to understand that in my mind and heart, Lord, and then help me to walk in confidence. It's like, when was the last time I did that? I want to start doing that. I think we all should. But Jesus said that we would see salvation and healing. He, he said that we would see, in a word, heaven come. And so I want to put my focus on that. I want to put my vision on that. So, so my question to you, do you want it? I want it too. I want the posture of the Lord's Prayer. I want the thinking of on earth as it is in heaven, and I want that lifestyle. Kenneth Bailey is a um, scholar who uh, spent years and years living in the Middle East and following Bedouin tribes around and learning about how oral tradition was passed down and how the gospels work and all kinds of fascinating stuff. He's got several different books. He has Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes and then he has Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes and some others and just really amazing cultural stuff and easy to read, real fun stuff. And in one of his books I was reading as I was preparing for the message, he uh, shared this story. He said that, um, you know, he, he went and visited Latvia at some point in his life and it was right after communism had fallen in Latvia. And he meets this girl there who's a Christian. And he's like, whoa, nobody's a Christian in Latvia because the communists wouldn't, have a, wouldn't allow Bibles or you know, churches or anything like that. And he said, well, how did you become a Christian? And, and she said, you know, um, we, yeah, we didn't have church, we didn't have any Bibles, but she, every time we'd go to a funeral, uh, we would recite the Lord's Prayer. It was the only ex- like, experience I had with the, even the idea of Jesus. And she said, to me, the Lord's Prayer was like a little glimmer of hope at the end of a very, very dark tunnel. And she just wondered, could it be true? Could it be true? And so she would recite it to herself before bed, the Lord's Prayer. And she said that when, when Bibles were finally allowed back into their country and churches began to open up and she began to read the Bible, she realized that she was already a Christian because her life had taken the shape of the Lord's Prayer. What could happen if you allowed this prayer to become the shape of your life? Let's all stand together and let's read this out loud. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's just take a moment, if you need to close your eyes, to just focus. We invite you, Holy Spirit.